Hello, and welcome to the Pediatric Anesthesia Journal's Featured Article of the Month podcast for October 2023. These monthly podcasts are published on the journal's website, and you can also subscribe to them via iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Podbean. My name is Dr. Devnath Chatterjee, and I'm one of the journal's education editors. This month's featured article is entitled, Error Traps in the Perioperative Management of Children with Type 1 Diabetes. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome the first author of this article, Dr. Monica Hoagland, a pediatric anesthesiologist at Children's Hospital, Colorado. Welcome to this podcast, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Dave. I appreciate the opportunity to speak on this topic. So before we get started, I would like to share some more details about the articles in the Error Trap series for which I serve as the handling editor. The focus of these articles is to highlight common and preventable clinical errors in the practice of pediatric anesthesiology, and several subspecialties have been covered. The article for this month focuses on the perioperative care of children with type 1 diabetes. Monica, why is this topic really important for pediatric anesthesiologists? Type 1 diabetes is a relatively common disease, especially among pediatric patients. I would expect that every pediatric anesthesiologist will care for an insulin-dependent patient in their career. Insulin is a high-risk medication that is commonly associated with medication errors, and a high percentage of healthcare workers express a lack of familiarity with using it. In addition, physiologic changes in the perioperative period can affect the patient's insulin requirements, and incorrect dosing can result in significant hypoglycemia or diabetic ketoacidosis. Finally, the use of diabetes technology, including insulin pumps and continuous glucose monitors, is increasingly common. Anesthesiologists must be familiar with the appropriate perioperative use of these devices to provide appropriate care for their patients. That makes sense. There was a recent publication in the journal Anesthesia and Algesia on this very topic from the Diabetes Workgroup of the SPA Quality and Safety Committee. How is this paper different and what does it add to the literature? The recommendations we published in ANA in 2020 were based on the guidelines from the ISPAD, or the International Society of Pediatric and Adolescent Diabetes. We adapted them to reflect more realistic practice patterns from the anesthesiologist standpoint. The 2020 guidelines are still a great reference for practice recommendations, though we have made some minor updates in this paper. Some of those include specific recommendations for how to handle automated insulin delivery systems and dosing recommendations for intravenous insulin infusions. The more significant difference is that this paper focuses on the why and the how to implement certain recommendations. We tried to give more background information so anesthesiologists would be more empowered to make medical decisions in complex situations. We also spent more time explaining the ins and outs of diabetes technology as the use of these systems in pediatric patients continues to grow. So this is the perfect segue to move on to the first error trap, which is failure to assess the patient and coordinate care. What would you recommend? The most important consideration here is reaching out to patients, their endocrinologists, and the proceduralist prior to the day of surgery to ensure that appropriate care plan has been created and relayed to the patient or their caregiver. Some of the recommendations, such as communicating appropriate insulin dosing, fasting instructions, and instructions for placement of diabetes devices to the family are essential to ensuring safe perioperative care. This is especially true for newly diagnosed patients who may never have needed to fast while taking insulin before. If these patients arrive in pre-op holding without being assessed by a perioperative physician, it is too late to appropriately inform their care. 
this is a really challenging situation if you work in an environment where patients are not routinely screened prior to the day of surgery and is something that we've been working on at our own institution. The ultimate goal is that these patients are screened at least a few days ahead of time. The anesthesiologist should know the patient's baseline insulin dosing regimen, their use of diabetes technology, and the frequency of complications such as DKA or hypoglycemia. A plan for perioperative insulin management should be created in conjunction with the patient's endocrinologist and relayed to the patient. Patients with type 1 diabetes must receive their basal insulin even while fasting to prevent DKA. However, they should not use short-acting insulin boluses while fasting. The exact recommendations for insulin dosing, including patients who may potentially need a reduced insulin dose, are listed in the guidelines. The patient should also receive instructions for fasting and how to manage hypoglycemia on the morning of surgery. Makes sense. Moving on to the second error trap that highlights changing trends in diabetes technology, and you briefly mentioned this. Can you give us an update on what is new? This is probably the most important part of this paper and the area that I get asked about most frequently. Over 60% of patients with type 1 diabetes in the U.S. use an insulin pump, and about 30% use a continuous glucose monitor, or CGM. These numbers will continue to grow as the most recent recommendations from the ISPAD are that every child with type 1 diabetes should ideally be managed with insulin pump therapy. I would really encourage everyone to read through the paper for a detailed explanation of this technology, including the exact indications and contraindications for perioperative use, but I'll give an overview here. CGMs are wearable devices that provide near-continuous glucose readings. A subcutaneous filament measures interstitial glucose every one to 15 minutes and transmits the data to a dedicated device or a smartphone app. Insulin pumps are wearable devices that provide a continuous subcutaneous insulin infusion of rapid-acting insulin to meet basal insulin demands. They can also be used to administer rapid-acting insulin to meet bolus demands. Because no long-acting insulin is administered, patients will not have active basal insulin if the pump is disconnected for more than a short time. Some insulin pumps and CGMs can work together to provide automated insulin delivery. In this situation, the pump receives data from the CGM and uses an algorithm to adjust insulin delivery. Depending on the CGM values, the pump may increase, decrease, or suspend the patient's insulin infusion, or may give an additional insulin bolus. It is not always apparently obvious when automated insulin delivery is active, so any patient with both an insulin pump and a CGM should be asked about their pump settings. In addition, these devices can look sort of similar to each other, so people who are not familiar with them may not recognize what kind of device a patient is wearing, and they should make sure that they get that information straight before taking care of the patient. Diabetes technology is contraindicated in certain clinical settings, though the exact recommendations vary by manufacturer. Diabetes devices are absolutely contraindicated in MRI. They are relatively contraindicated around other sources of radiation or electrocautery. If an insulin pump will be discontinued perioperatively, an intravenous insulin infusion must be started, ideally within 30 minutes, to prevent ketosis. Although patients use CGMs to make treatment decisions in the outpatient setting, they are not validated for hospitalized or perioperative patients. In the perioperative setting, CGMs can be used to follow glucose trends, but values should be verified by point-of-care testing, such as capillary or serum testing, prior to making treatment decisions. Automated insulin delivery systems rely on CGM data to adjust insulin administration. So because CGMs are not currently validated for this purpose in the perioperative setting, 
patients using automated insulin delivery should have their pumps reset to a manual mode with a fixed insulin infusion rate or should be converted to intravenous insulin infusion for the perioperative period. Those are some excellent tips. The next couple of error traps discuss monitoring blood glucose and administering insulin. Can you please share some pearls of wisdom? The basic summary for perioperative management of type 1 diabetes patients is that all patients require basal insulin, even while fasting, and that blood glucose should be checked at least hourly in the perioperative period to prevent dysglycemia. If today's listeners can remember those points, they should be good to go. So let's first discuss blood glucose monitoring. Blood glucose should be checked at least hourly in the perioperative period. More frequent monitoring is needed if the patient is hypoglycemic or if changes are made to insulin or dextrose therapy. Blood glucose can be monitored with serial, capillary, or serum point-of-care testing or by following CGM trends. If a CGM is used, values must be validated with point-of-care testing before making treatment decisions. The perioperative goal is to keep glucose between 90 to 180 milligrams per deciliter. Values outside this range may trigger changes in insulin or dextrose administration as noted in the paper. And patients with a blood glucose above 250 milligrams per deciliter should be evaluated for DKA. Insulin administration is a little trickier and is dependent on the type of procedure, the use of diabetes technology, and the patient's current metabolic status. The big take-home point is that patients with type 1 diabetes need basal insulin even while fasting to maintain metabolic stability and prevent ketosis. Additional insulin may be necessary to prevent or manage hyperglycemia. In general, we'd like to keep patients on their usual subcutaneous insulin regimen whenever possible. However, some patients will require conversion to intravenous insulin in the perioperative period. The indications for conversion to intravenous insulin include, one, patients who are undergoing longer or complex surgical procedures with an anticipated delayed return to normal oral intake. Two, patients who are critically ill or metabolically unstable, including those who are in ketosis or who have not appropriately received their last basal insulin dose. And three, patients who use an insulin pump that must be discontinued in the perioperative period. In any of these situations, an intravenous insulin infusion should be started and continued until the patient is able to resume normal oral intake and transition back to their subcutaneous insulin regimen. Some of the key points we emphasized in this paper were pitfalls that people may encounter when converting between subcutaneous and intravenous insulin dosing. And that section definitely deserves a read for people who are unfamiliar with this topic. Thank you so much, Monica. Those are some excellent points. Before we wrap up this podcast, do you have any concluding remarks? Um, Type 1 diabetes is common in our pediatric population, and these patients are sure to be a part of your practice at some point in your career. Insulin dosing and administration isn't necessarily hard, but it is high risk and certainly anxiety-provoking for providers who don't do it often. In addition, technology in this area is rapidly advancing and devices are constantly being upgraded. I hope that in the next few years, we'll be able to validate and standardize the perioperative use of these devices so that patients can be maintained on their home settings throughout the perioperative period. But until then, anesthesiologists must have a working understanding of these devices, when they should or should not be used perioperatively, and how patients should be managed without them. Ideally, anesthesiologists in any practice should have a set of guidelines relative to this patient population. They should at least be familiar with the error traps that are outlined in this article to make informed care decisions. This is perfect. Thank you so much, Monica. It has been a lovely discussion, and we really appreciate you taking the time to chat. We look forward to more submissions from you and your team. 
keep up all this great work that you're doing in this area. Thanks again for having me, Dave. I really appreciate the opportunity to disseminate this information through the podcast medium, and I hope we'll be able to reach a larger audience because of it. You're welcome. This wraps up our featured article of the month podcast for October 2023. This article will be available for free on the journal's website soon. Please follow us on X on at PD Anesthesia. Until then, cheers. <laughs>